Welcome to the Micah Brown Podcast, where we have the most authentic conversations you've ever heard on a podcast. I get the privilege of talking with amazing people every week in a way that lets us really get to know them as a fellow human being, whether it's a CEO, a military service member, an entrepreneur, a former convict, a teacher, a medical professional, or even a university president. They're all just fellow human beings at the end of the day. So join us as we discuss life, obstacles, successes, and much more. Don't forget to subscribe, share, like, and follow. This show is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, pages on all of those. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn where I post things pretty frequently. The Facebook page is Micah Brown Podcast, while both Instagram and Twitter are at Actual MVP. And I'm pretty sure even if you look on Facebook at Actual MVP, you'll be able to find the correct page. This podcast exists to promote genuine, authentic conversations, which lead to, spoiler alert, genuine, authentic relationships. Simply put, we need to post more, talk less. The more this message gets out, the more positive change we can affect in the world. There are three main ways to support this movement and effort. Number one, support your own knowledge and entertainment by going to audibletrial.com forward slash MBP and get your free 30-day trial. Number two, go to coffee.com, except it's spelled weird. It's ko-fi.com forward slash actual MBP to become a direct supporter. Or finally, number three, become a patron through my webpage by going to microbrownpodcast.podbean.com. Or since that's a lot of links and you're probably just listening to this driving in a car or showering or working out or doing something where you can't use your phone right away, you can just go to any of those social media accounts when you get a chance and look at the link tree where you can find all the direct links there. Now, let's get to our conversation for this week. On today's episode, I get to interview again Dr. Bowen Lofton. Dr. Bowen Lofton was born in Hearn, Texas. He graduated from Texas A&M University in three years with a degree in physics with highest honors in 1970. After that, he earned a master's degree and a PhD in physics from Rice University. He's a genius. The many positions Dr. Lofton has held include being the chancellor of the University of Missouri, the director of the NASA Virtual Environments Research Institute at the University of Houston, a professor of electrical and computer engineering and computer science at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and the executive director of the Virginia Modeling Analysis and Simulation Center. It's a lot. However, my personal biased favorite position that he had was as my president at Texas A&M University, where he maintained that position for nearly five years, including his time as interim president. Lofton led Texas A&M to a move from the Big 12 to the SEC, something we'll talk about today, acquire a law school, and merge with the Health Science Center. Prior to being appointed interim president, he served as the CEO of Texas A&M University's Galveston campus, where he also held the position of Professor of Maritime Systems Engineering. For those that don't know, in the fall of 2008, when Hurricane Ike hit the Texas Gulf Coast, Dr. Lofton excuse me, oversaw the evacuation of the multi-site Galveston campus and relocation of almost all of the 1,500 students, along with many of the faculty and staff, to the Texas A&M main campus in College Station. 
This is believed to be the first time that an entire institution of higher education was transposed onto another for an extended period of time. As if that's not enough, Dr. Lofton is the author or co-author of more than 100 100 technical publications, as well as a personal memoir titled The 100-Year Decision, Texas A&M and the SCC. Finally, Dr. Lofton's awards include the University of Houston Downtown Awards for Excellence in Teaching and in Service twice, the American Association of Artificial Intelligence Award for an Innovative Application of Artificial Intelligence, it's a mouthful, NASA's Space Act Award, the NASA Public Service Medal, the 1995 NASA Invention of the Year Award, and the IEEE Virtual Reality Conference Career Award. Despite all of these accolades, none of this can compare to his main goal. I can say from firsthand experience, his deep and sacrificial love for the Texas A&M students empowers, overpowers all other achievements. Quote, that's my presidency. I want my legacy to be focused on students. It's what I want to be remembered for, end quote. He said, I believe he did that at Texas A&M. And in case you missed it, I previously had Dr. Lofton on for episode 24, where we discussed his upbringing, the interesting story of him getting a scholarship to Texas A&M, how he met his wife, and about his time at A&M's Galveston campus. Today, we will be chatting about that 100-year decision of moving Aggies from the Big 12 to the SEC and about his time during the Mizzou protests uh, and being chancellor there. That's enough of me talking. For the second time now, I welcome back my friend and guest, Dr. Bowen Lofton. Dr. Lofton, it is a pleasure to have you again on the podcast. Uh, you are one of two people to ever come back to be back on the podcast as a guest. So you're in an exclusive group. How are you doing today? Well, that just means I guess I didn't get it right the first time. So you- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we just got more to talk well. about. It's, That's all. It's a busy day. Uh, Fridays, I always have a meeting. Uh, if I can make it with uh, a group, that I'll I won't give their their name. I use here. It's a little bit uh, off base, but uh, uh, it's a bunch of old guys. Uh, I'm the youngest one of the group, which tells you how old they all are. And well, you're only like forty, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, these are people who had senior administrative roles at Texas A&M and uh, get together every Friday morning. This goes back a long ways. When I was president, uh, they met across from the campus at Barnes and Nobles uh, across Texas Avenue from the main campus there. And at 10 o'clock every Friday morning, and I would drop in maybe once every month or two uh, for a few minutes just to say howdy and get their wisdom. Uh, but this, these are retired deans, uh, retired provosts, uh, there used to be a retired president in there, or chancellor rather, uh, Haskell Monroe. You would not know what Haskell was on the faculty during my days here, uh, was the founding dean of faculties at Texas A&M, went on to be the UTEP president, and was chancellor at the University of Missouri uh, years ago. And so I, I didn't succeed him exactly, but years later, many, many others later, I was the, the chancellor there as well. And Haskell and I used to talk fairly often. He was a great guy, historian. Uh, a lot of a lot of stories. I'll just tell you one quick story about him, which you might find amusing. So I show up at Missouri as the chancellor. Uh, very quickly after I got there, I got a note from the, the uh, dean of libraries saying, "Please come to the next meeting of the friends of the library." 
And so being dutiful about all that, I showed up there and it was a nice sized group. And, and I just sat down in the chair and, and listened to what was going on. And there was a little program. And towards the end of it, he said, let me introduce the new members of the Friends of the Library. And uh, he read my name off. And I didn't say anything at the moment, but after we got done, I kind of peeled him off and I said, look, you know, I've never written a check to you. I'm not really a member of this little group here, a fundraising group that you've created for the library. He says, don't worry, Haskell Monroe paid your dues. (laughs) (laughs) That was interesting, I thought. Uh, uh, Haskell, being a historian, loved the library. And there are great stories about him in the library and his brick collection. Imagine a brick collection. Please elaborate. Please don't no, just stop there. Yeah, he, he collect, Well, you may, may know this or maybe not know this, but uh, long ago, bricks were manufactured very locally. They're heavy. Transportation right. was a challenge. And so for a long time in this country and also all around the world, bricks were manufactured in a very you know, place and only used around that location. And they were all embossed with the name of the manufacturer and the city or or area they were in. And so Haskell, as he traveled the country, literally the country and some of the world beyond that, uh, would always look for these old bricks that had the unique markings of a small brick factory in a particular region and were only you know used in that region to build homes and, and business offices and so on. And so he, he had this collection of bricks, over a thousand of them. And he Goodness gracious. from here at A&M, to El Paso, from El Paso to Columbia, Missouri, and from Columbia, Missouri, back here when he retired as chancellor at Mizzou. And you can imagine the weight and the expense of trying to move all these bricks around. I, and I'm just thinking of, since they're not just bricks, right? They're, they're mementos for him, exactly. of historical mementos. They, it's not just, hey, let's load these up in the back of a truck, just toss them back there and we'll drive away. It's, if you set that down too hard, I'm coming after you kind of thing. Yeah, and, and bricks can be fragile if you if you drop them and, and uh, handle them roughly. I mean, they're strong. Especially old bricks, right? Compressive strength. They really aren't strong from the standpoint of, of what we call sheer, sheer strength. And so they do break easily. Physics. Right. Especially <laughs> the old ones. The old ones. We've gotten better. They're now only a handful of brick manufacturers in the country. They're, they're trucked various places. And so it's different today than it was in the 19th uh, and, and most of the 20th century when he was collecting these bricks. But Haskell was a true character. He was a very respected and very sought after professor of history at A&M. When I was a student here, I knew of him. I never got into his class because it was always oversubscribed by people more senior than me. <laughs> so I never got a chance to have him in class, but he was known to be an extraordinary to- storyteller, as many historians are. And and uh, was quite respected and loved by the student body here during the 1950s and 60s when he was teaching history. So just one of those little things you probably would never know about, but I, I lived through in a way because he was part of this group of old guys I would meet with every now and then, and now I meet with him. He's, he's passed away now, but I meet with him still uh, in a somewhat different group now. Some have died, some new ones have been added to it basically, and so that's my Friday morning from 10 to 11 anyway. <laughs> That's great. And I, I do you guys, I don't know how much you can share uh, if it's a, an exclusive group, but is it about just kind of the going ons of the university? Is it about the direction of the student body kind of situation or, or is it just sharing stories and kind of a, just a club to be in to talk about 
the times you were president, you were a student, that sort of thing? Well, sharing stories is really what it's all about. That, that's, that's for sure. Uh, they aren't limited, though, to Texas A&M or even universities. I mean, one guy in the group was the provost at Iowa State uh, after he left Texas A&M long ago. Another uh, was a president of a university uh, elsewhere, and so they all came back here to live. Not surprising. This is a great place to be, as you can well appreciate. But uh, we do share stories. I would say the majority are connected to the university today. We were talking about East Texas Baptist uh, university or college, as I used to know it, uh, and the uh, Texas A&M System Campus in Commerce, Texas, which isn't too far uh, from East Texas Baptist. We talked a bit about uh, the next stage in the life of our current president here, uh, Mike Young, who's going to be moving over to the Bush School next year when he retires as president to head up an institute there. Uh, those kind of things were discussed this morning, among other things. It's uh, it's always a good group. Uh, usually six to eight people show up. It's about probably 10 people total any given Friday. Maybe only, maybe two don't make it. Maybe only 68 make it. So we have, uh, I missed myself a few times, but my point is this is a little part of life now for me as a retiree. And, and again, I'm the junior member of this group. So I have to be very respectful of my elders there. That's fantastic. And it's, it's cool to hear whenever I talk to you, uh, for, for longer than, you know, three minutes. And uh, if it's not over a text message, we, I feel like you always give this insight to the other, we'll call them superstars of A&M, just people who maybe didn't get the, um, I feel like notoriety has a kind of a negative connotation, but didn't get the the fame that you did being the student body president with the bow ties. It was part or student body, the university president, but you were of the student body. Like you were always with the students. So to me, you were much more personable. So we all knew you, but anytime I talk to you, you're always talking about the other people that maybe we didn't know as much. Uh, and, you know, collecting bricks, that's something that I would have never heard about in any other context. So I always enjoy when we get to talk because I feel like you're, you are humble enough to point to the other amazing people that have paved away before you, uh, maybe paved away with bricks even, uh, but also just people that have come before you that sort that you surround yourself with. So I really appreciate that about you, that you, you always point to other people wanted to make sure to point that out there. Well, that's important. I mean, I think all of us, uh, to the extent we succeed at all, succeed because of the help of others. Uh, that's true of you, true of me, of anybody. And if you want to admit that, I think it's an important, important factor. Um, I think there are many people here who don't get proper thanks for what they've done and do. Uh, I think they, that they still do what they want to do and do well in spite of that lack of recognition. But I know it hurts sometimes when someone else stands up and claims credit for what you know you had a role to play in. I, I know today you want to talk about our moving into the SEC, and I've always said that was a team effort. Uh, there were many people yeah. involved in that effort, uh, not just here at Texas A&M, but certainly within the leadership of the SEC itself. Uh, so, Yeah, let me set the stage a little bit because uh, – Unfortunately, not only Aggies listen to this podcast, <laughs> so I want to give a little bit of context uh, to the, anybody that may be listening overseas in other states. Uh, the SEC is the Southeastern Conference. We're not talking about the financial SEC, but the Big 12 is also a conference that 
Texas A&M University used to be a part of. And during uh, President Lofton's tenure here, he made the 100-year decision, which is also uh, the title of a book you wrote, that transitioned us from the Big 12 to the SEC. And there was a little bit of drama and, and some excitement also that went along with that, uh, namely with another school very close to College Station and actually even closer to the house that I'm sitting in right now. But uh, I wanted to know just what that story was like. I know last time we had the interview, first interview, you did perfectly with just telling a story that just went right along with every question I wanted to ask. So this time I wanted to just kind of give you an open floor and let us know what that period was like being in the driver's seat. I, I would imagine there was a team around you and now you've said there was definitely a team around us. What were some of the conversations that took place as much as you can tell us? Um, but I know that it was one that quite frankly could easily turn into a television miniseries with how much just big, larger than life Texas hoopla was going into everything. So please, by all means, share us the story of, of that big gear shift to the SEC. Well, I, I can't tell the whole story because it would just take too long, I'm afraid. But And the book is always there. The book's in print still. One can always get the book and read the whole story if you want to. But I'll just give you a few really interesting markers here. Uh, for me, it really, you know, I'm a guy who loves athletics. I love sports. So I've watched lots of sports, but I was always, well, I shouldn't say always, long ago in a, in a different life, I was, a, I played a little bit. I was on a football team. I was on a baseball team, those kind of things, obviously. Uh, and enjoyed a little bit of that role, but I never was very good at it. So I, I never, even in a small high school, I wasn't a guy who played a lot. I, I won't tell anybody. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I just told the world. But uh, that's, that's very true. And that's kind of how this book starts out, too. It's sort of, you know, I'm an, odd, I'm an odd player for this particular role, shall we say. But I have to give you a little bit of context here. Uh, those as young as you don't remember uh, where we used to be. But uh, long, long ago, Texas A&M was part of what was called the Southwest Conference. Uh, that conference was comprised of teams from Texas and only one team outside of Texas. That was Arkansas. And that was a conference uh, that I lived through when I was a student here at Texas A&M. And that's the conference we played in. And we all knew it well. We had these very familiar schools we played against each year, like TCU, uh, the Horned Toads, as I called them, uh, SMU, uh, of course, our friends in Austin, where you live right now, and near where you live, uh, were part of that group, and, and, and. Uh, so this was a conference which had a long history. Uh, a lot of interesting rivalries were built up. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, interesting stories can be told about that. But the problem we had was TV. Uh, this conference, again, was limited, except for one school, to Texas. Now, Texas is a big state. I'm a Texan. You know that we're a big state. Uh, we're very proud of that. We think we kind of uh, have a, have a, the ability to, to stride anywhere and take control. But the reality is that that TVs now control a lot of college sports, and we were just too small a geographic region to be interesting to the big money in television. And so this all came to a head in the 1990s. Uh, and it led to the conference itself just blowing up. 
basically falling apart. Uh, Arkansas fled to uh, a conference we call the SEC or the Southeastern Conference, uh, Texas A&M and Texas and uh, two other schools ended up in what's now called the Big 12. Uh, it was actually a merger between, or I shouldn't say merger, but a joining of uh, schools from Texas with what was called the Big 8 at the time, a conference dominated, dominating the Midwestern part of the United States. Uh, and that's a whole story itself I won't go into, but chapter one of my book gives you a succinct history of all this. Uh, that chapter written by Rusty Burson, who is a, a person you will interview someday. Rusty is a very uh, a prolific sports writer, uh, lives here in Bryan College Station right now, uh, used to work at the 12th Man Foundation as a writer for them. He wrote a lot of their media stuff. And now he works over at Miramont here in, in Bryan. So he's local, but a guy who loves baseball, especially, and has written widely about sports, including baseball. Uh, and he joined with me to write this book. He wrote chapter one, which was the historic run-up uh, to our joining the, the, uh, the SEC, sort of setting the stage for it all. And he wrote the last chapter, which was written to talk about our first year in the SEC, because the book came out after that first year had been, had been in fact, two years had been done by the time the book came, came out. So I did the, the middle. He did the he did the bread, I did the meat, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, we, we got it done several years ago. Uh, the book was published in 2014, uh, giving you a sense of timing there. But understand, this was the context. We, had, we were part of a conference that no longer was relevant on the national stage, and it fell apart. And that led us to join what's now the Big 12, uh, the Big 8, uh, was really interested in adding Texas and Texas A&M to its membership to form a 10-team conference and become more competitive for the TV market, uh, covering the whole swath, really, in the middle of the country, literally. Uh, but there were others who had different plans. Uh, in particular, the governor of Texas at the time was Ann Richards, a proud graduate of Baylor University. And the governor was Bob Bullock, a proud graduate of Texas Tech University. And guess what? Uh, they summoned the leadership from these two schools, one in College Station, one in Austin, uh, to meet with them in Austin and told them in no uncertain terms, you will not join the Big Eight without taking two other schools with you. So the leadership from Texas A&M and Texas uh, was told, uh, if you don't go along with this, you will be severely, severely punished uh, financially by the state of Texas for not taking Baylor and Texas Tech with you. So reluctantly. I, I want to know what kind of financial punishment to somebody who's not on the inside, what kind of punishment could they really leverage? I mean, I, and I'm thinking even from a government standpoint, okay, even if you have personal beef as the lieutenant governor, the governor, that sort of thing, how is it like an executive order that just suddenly funding disappears? I mean, what kind of leverage do they actually have? Well, quite a bit in a way. Uh, I won't give you a civics lesson necessarily right now. The governor probably less than the governor. The governor of Texas is a very powerful person who presides over the Texas Senate. Okay. And they, they also, that's 31 people. Okay. That's not many people. And they also appoint every committee chair and every committee member, and they decide which bills 
the legislature will consider. Think about that. They have that much power in one individual. The governor can't do that. <laughs> the Tony governor can. And so you know, one can imagine that they could make life very difficult for us by uh, trying to cut the appropriations done every two years for these two schools, Austin and, and Texas A&M. So that's, that's sort of the implied threat here. I don't know if they would have done it or, and they, they could have had some major impact. They could have done it by themselves, obviously. But uh, it was a threat taken very seriously by leadership here and in Austin. And guess what? They went to talk to the big eight leadership and said, look, we've got to bring two more schools into this. That wasn't well received, but the desperation was high about trying to create a larger, more geographically you know, important conference than the Big Eight by itself was or the old Southwest Conference was by itself. And so ultimately, the 10 schools became 12 schools, and hence the term Big 12 became the, uh, the, the name. Uh, and that led to some interesting problems. I mean, right, first of all, the new location for the conference offices was in Dallas, Texas, all of a sudden. Uh, that didn't fly well with the old membership of the Big Eight, okay? That, yeah, uh, I can imagine. Back in, back in the old days. Uh, so that was part of the problem. And then the other problem we had was that Nebraska had had a uh, long and very uh, good history of success in football. Uh, and they really felt they had a lot of sway uh, also, to some extent, Oklahoma felt the same way about that. And those two members of the Big Eight uh, were a little bit displeased that all of a sudden they had these four of the schools there, one of which thought they should be in charge. I won't tell you which school that was, but you can probably guess. <laughs> I mean, I have my very strong opinions. <laughs> so uh, this is the context. So I'm, I become interim president uh, in June of 2009. Okay. Uh, about my second day in office, uh, we got a phone call from the Big 12 office in Dallas saying, there's an emergency meeting of the Big 12 board in Dallas. Uh, we need Lofton there. And so I dutifully flew up to, to Dallas uh, and got picked up by a member of the staff of the Big 12 and driven over to the office building they were officed in and attended my first meeting of the Big 12 leadership. And from the moment I walked in the room, it was very clear who was in charge. Uh, the chairman of the board was a man named Bill Powers, who was the president of the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, it was very clear that he was in control. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, the president of the University of Oklahoma wasn't there. He sent a representative. And I learned immediately that there was a flaw in the Big 12's operations in that the leadership team, that is the presidents and chancellors of the 12 schools, did not have to attend the board meetings. They could send a deputy, a representative. And that robbed them of a great deal of, of power, it turned out, in terms of driving things in one way or the other. Uh, the SEC, on the other hand, if you don't show up as the chancellor or president of your school, you don't get a vote at all. <laughs> there is no say. Uh, so guess what? All of us attended the SEC. Attended every meeting. Yeah, I bet. The Big 12, it'd be usually two or three missing people at every meeting, but they'd have a representative there who could vote for them. And, but that took away a lot of the stroke that these individuals would have had had they come in person. And I'll just tell you, David Boren, who was for a long time the Oklahoma president, 
uh, admitted to me finally he should have been much more present at these meetings than he had been. His things had gone in a way which didn't really please him over time, and part of that was his lack of, of being present at these meetings here. That's how serious this was. Uh, anyway, long stories I can tell you about all this stuff here, but I found out right away how things worked in the SEC, I mean, in the, in the Big 12, and the other problem we had in the Big 12 was the way the money was, was handed out. The, the money from TV, uh, which was the bulk of the money available to the conference to give to its membership, was divided up not equally as in the SEC. Uh, a part of it was, but another part of it, half of it literally, was divided up based on how many TV appearances your football team had had in a given year. Well, uh, that meant that schools like Austin and uh, in particular Nebraska and Oklahoma, those three were the ones who the TV networks preferred because they had more of a national brand and standing than Texas A&M and Texas Tech and Kansas and Kansas State, Oklahoma State had. So guess what? The distribution was not by any means equal. And there were uh, a few schools, two or three, at one end of the spectrum. And there were three at the other end of the spectrum, uh, Kansas State and Kansas, for example. Uh, and then in the middle were schools like us, Texas A&M. Uh, so that was what I learned very quickly about this whole thing here. And it, it just told me this conference, which was formed around a television contract, uh, had some serious stability issues over, over time. And that, that's where I started thinking about where we needed to go. Were we in the right place or not? So I did two things. I, I, I thought about you know, other possibilities for us in terms of a conference home. I also thought about could we somehow make the Big 12 a better place to be? And I worked both of those in parallel. Uh, I really worked hard trying to con convince the other members of the board of the Big 12 that we should move to a, a model of revenue sharing that was equitable across all the schools. That wasn't popular, but at least I was heard and understood, and there was thought about that. Uh, now, I think it is equal for its old members, but not for TCU and West Virginia, who are the new members of, of the Big 12. So still, there's inequity in that conference, okay? Uh, the SEC is one where revenue is shared equally among all the schools, no matter how big or small you are you all get the same check at the end of the day. And that really makes it a lot more comfortable to sit down in a meeting. Yeah, I feel like that's going to make the conversations a little bit easier to have if everybody's just kind of on the same foot. There's no – it doesn't get awkward. It, I mean, that's the same as if you have a, a team of employees that you, you start to pay out based on what they produced and you're like, well, but – this person produced just, you know, a little bit more than you. So we're going to hand them a couple more dollars and you have to have that conversation every time it's a, it's a moving target to some degree. It is. I mean, I can understand that, that model too, but this is not a matter of incentivizing one person. This is a matter of universities that have their own history, their own culture, their own aspirations. And when you tell them that you're not as equal as me, <laughs> Uh, that's a little bit difficult situation to, to have. There. Also, at that time, not so much today, but at that time in the Big 12, you did not cede your rights when you, uh, when you went into the conference. So when the Big 12 got a TV contract, all of us had to sign. 
every school had to had to accept the contract individually. In the SEC, when you enter it, as you begin your, your tenure there, uh, you yield your rights to all of your TV stuff to the conference as a whole, and they're the ones, it's the conference leadership, the commissioner signs the contract, not the individual chancellors and presidents of the various schools. Just a different model for how to operate. The bylaws of the SEC are about a page long. The bylaws of the Big 12 are over 20 pages long. <laughs> you should have built the suspense right up a little bit more there, or about 20 pages long. <laughs> Only That's one nuts. school has ever left the SEC, and that was by their choice, and that was Tulane. Today, if you want to leave the ACC, for example, the Lincoln Conference, there's a penalty of $50 million if you want to leave that conference. Guess That's going to hurt. Leaving the SEC is. It's zero. There is no penalty. If you decide to leave, you walk out the door and there's no penalty whatsoever. But every other conference has a penalty and the ACC is being the largest of those. I gave you the extreme example, but 50 million. When, when Maryland left the, the SEC for the Big Ten, uh, they paid a hefty price for that. They really did. So it just gives you a sense of how different things are. So I figured this out pretty quickly and realized that this wasn't going to be a conference that I had great faith was going to be around in 50 years or even 25 or 20 or 10 years, maybe. Uh, so that was one driver. So I did two things. I, I tried to gently move the conference from where it had been in terms of its distribution of revenue and, and its leadership style to a different place. And at the same time, I began thinking about how we might find a better place. Uh, one person I went to very quickly uh, that you'll know of is a man named Coach R.C. Slocum. Uh, I don't know if you know the history of R.C. Uh, he's still the winningest coach ever at Texas A&M. He was here quite a while. Uh, I think you'd already he, – he was left before, left before you got here as a student. What was his last year? Because I think he might have been there when my sister was in college. Yeah, that would be – I mean, he – we had Francione, uh, I would say uh, – Five or six was probably his his last year. When Bob Gates became president, uh, Gates arrived uh, and was ordered to fire R.C. Slocum uh, by the board of, of regents. And that basically was the, the departure. So Gates arrived as R.C. left the coaching job. And R.C. was a very popular guy, and Gates uh, very properly found a place for him. So he, he was made special assistant to the president, uh, and he, uh, that continued under Elsa Morano and under me as president. Uh, and so I talked to RC pretty frequently and, and really treasured his advice. And he had been in the leadership role as head coach at the time that Sarah's conference fell apart and we joined the Big 12. He was there and he knew all the history of that, all the personnel of that. So I, I learned from him a great deal about how the Big 12 was formed. And some of what I've already told you came to me from RC and from, and from the president of the university and the chancellor of the system at the time this all happened. I talked to all those people about it, and their stories were really very consistent. And so I'm pretty confident that I told you a moment ago about sort of the origins of the Big 12 or highly accurate things because they were all there, uh, physically present to these kinds of first governor and, and things yeah. like that. So it gives you a sense that, that there was, uh, you know, this – new thing we had, relatively new thing called the Big 12, 
there were serious concerns I had about its stability. Uh, and I began just to raise those concerns with the regents and others to, be, to begin to test the waters here. That's kind of where we were when I became president in 2009. Uh, and then uh, 2010 is when we really began to have some serious sort of issues with our brethren in Austin. And, uh, and that, that really kind of spurred things along. And so 2010 uh, was a year. I'll just tell you one story from that so we don't get too bogged down in everything. But uh, I am over in Austin, Texas, uh, having a meeting with Bill Powers, the president of the University of Texas, Austin. And we had a good sized group there. I had guys with me from AM and he had people with him from his campus there. We got through with our business here. And we were kind of saying goodbye and walking out. I said, Bill, can I talk to you privately for a few minutes? And he said, sure. So everybody left the room, but the two of us. Now, I have to tell you, Bill Powers is now deceased. So I'm the only person that witnessed this is still alive. <laughs> okay. But oh, I said, I'm hearing rumors, Bill, that you are talking with the PAC-10 conference and that you guys are discussing the possibility of not only UT Austin joining the PAC, but also Texas A&M joining the PAC. Is this true? So he walks closer to me and puts his hand on my shoulder, looks into my eyes and says to me, uh, Bowen, I can't tell you about that right now, but don't worry. Whatever happens, we'll take care of you. Um, I had to use every bit of self-control I had that moment not to physically attack this man. I mean, it was no kidding. The condescension. And it's funny, I know he didn't mean it to be condescending. He didn't consciously think about how I would hear these words and understand them. But it was such a moment that I thought, how can these people be so full of themselves to talk to me that way? To talk to a fellow institution as big as they are in size that time. Uh, we were pretty comparable in, in size at that time. And they have, you know, a, a very deep history and culture, each of us. And to have him talk to me like that, as if I were some poor cousin he had to find money for to feed. Did uh, he tap you on the head too? Did he pat you on the head and just say you're No, he did not okay? do that. Because <laughs> it sounds like he was about to. I just basically bit my tongue and didn't say much more and thanked him for his time and left. So about a month and a half later, he's here on campus. Uh, what you wouldn't know is that uh, annually there has been a historic tradition, if you will, of having meetings between the faculty senates in Austin and Texas and College Station together. They meet one year over in Austin, one year in College Station. Well, uh, you know, in this particular year, this is 2010 now, uh, the time for the meeting and the place the meeting was going to be in College Station. So we had a meeting over at the Association of Former Students Building. Uh, Bill came to town. I was there. We, we walked over there together and, and, uh, and basically spoke together to the faculties assembled from both campuses of uh, the leadership and, and afterwards walked back to my office here before he flew back to Austin. And the same exact conversation happened again. I said, Bill, I'm still hearing these rumors. What's going on? He spoke exactly the same words to me again and left my office to go back to Austin. So that's, those two encounters just basically convinced me that we had to find an alternative. So I then went to the Board of Regents in a, in a closed session, and I told them what had happened, 
And I said to them, I think we need to explore other options here. And at least the majority concurred with that exploration idea. Uh, and so I took that as, as a license to be able to begin to do some things. Uh, so Bill Byrne was my AD at the time. Uh, Bill's son, Greg, was the AD at Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, member of the SEC. So I said, Bill, would you give me your son's phone number or would you call him and ask him to give me or give you to give me the private phone number for Mike Slive, the commissioner of the SEC? And so in a short time, Bill called me and said, here's Slive's number. Uh, and I didn't really tell him exactly why I was doing all this, but, but I, I got the number and I called Mike Slive up and we began our conversation. Uh, but what's interesting is that Shortly after Powers and I met in my office in College Station, and these words were spoken again to me, uh, I got a phone call from Larry Scott. Uh, Larry Scott, you may not know him, is, was then and is now the commissioner of the PAC, PAC-12 today, not the PAC-10 as it was then, but they'd grown by two schools. And so he called me up and said, can I come see you? And I said, yeah, I'm happy to see you. And about a day later, Bill Powers calls me and says, uh, you'll get a call from Larry Scott. He wants to come see you. I said, too late, Bill. <laughs> too, yeah, you lost your chance. Did you get, whenever Larry Scott called you, did you get this feeling of like, this makes sense. I, I figured he would, somebody would be calling me. The rumors continue. I mean, what you, what you learn pretty quickly as a college president is athletics is a very leaky ship. <laughs> uh, people just can't keep things to themselves. They have to talk about it. They got all these friends. I mean, Coaches and senior staff people move around a lot in college sports, school to school. And there's a network out there of people that know each other very well, yeah. who move yeah. schools many times during their careers, and they talk to each other a lot. And the currency of the day is what's the latest piece of gossip you got about your school, and they share stuff. So that's how I heard all this stuff. It was really being passed around among various uh, uh, folks, people in, at the UT Austin athletic department, we're talking to people over here about what was happening between them and, and the pack. So that's how I heard all this stuff. So I wasn't a bit surprised when Scott called me. What I was surprised about is when he showed up, he showed me a complete set of schedules for every sport in a 16-team conference. So his vision of the pack was to expand from 10 to 16 teams and to have two divisions, one North and one South that would play internally with schools in each division playing a couple of games with two other schools in the other, in the other divisions every year. And then having a championship for the entire conference once a year to settle who was the best to go into the, into the bowl game seasons and that sort of thing. So uh, he had been, this is like a six month job. So this just confirmed that, that there had been this lengthy conversation between UT Austin's leadership and, and the PAC conference leadership, and that they had worked themselves silly for months to plan for a different scale conference than they currently had. It would include Texas A&M and Texas and Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, by the way, are part of that equation as well. Uh, as well as Nebraska and, and uh, Colorado. So that was the six schools that were going to move 
West basically and join the pack and form this new 16-team conference. And he saw this as being very symmetrical. Uh, today, we have five conferences, five so-called power five conferences. They include the Big 12 and the SEC and the PAC and the ACC and the Big 10. That's the five conferences. These are the ones that get the bulk of the money. Okay, that's where the wealth in college sports basically resides. And guess what? There are 64 teams in those conferences. <laughs> so Larry kind of knew all this stuff and saw how it was going to go. And he basically saw ultimately four 16-team conferences being the way the world would be. In D1, you'd have about half a Division I in one of these four conferences here, and you'd have the symmetry of 16 teams in each conference, geographically dispersed as appropriate, and that's how you would run the world. That was his vision. And I, you know, I can't argue. It was, it was a very powerful, compelling vision in some respects, and we may still get there. We aren't there right now. We may still get there, though, someday especially if the Big 12 implodes at some point in the future and we end up having to figure out where those schools will have to go. But my point to you simply is that this was something which had been long time in making. This is not a very spur of the moment meeting we had here. He had been planning for this for months and months and months and he shows up here. And I listened to him politely. I had Bill Byrne there uh, with me as well to hear the pitch. And they had a very, very comprehensive view of things. Uh, so I then called Mike Slive at the SEC and said, Mike, we need to talk further about this. Here's what's just happened. So uh, Mike arranged to fly secretly to uh, Hooks Airport near north of Houston. And I drove down there with one of our lawyers. And uh, we met in the conference room of, the, of, the, uh, of what's called the fixed base off of the FBO there at, at Hooks Airport to uh, discuss our future. And and Mike, to his credit, knew what I'd just been through with Larry Scott. So he basically had his team put together a, not as comprehensive a thing, but really a vision more of how AM fitted into the SEC. It was more a matter not of here's how we're going to schedule things. That wasn't the issue. It was here's the kind of schools that exist in the SEC. Here's how we see AM and look how these fit together. Look how good the fit is here. Most schools in the SEC are land grants, okay? Most have very robust agriculture and engineering programs. So you begin to understand this is not a matter of the SEC seeing us as, a, as an opportunity, opportunity to go and pick up this plum called Texas A&M there to get into the Texas market, which was certainly part of the equation, but more a matter of saying you really belong with us because you fit us. Guess what? Berkeley couldn't do that. <laughs> so the other side, the PAC had schools like University of Washington, uh, Berkeley, UCLA, USC, all these West Coast schools there that had a different character. Now, Berkeley is admittedly a land grant, but I mean, it doesn't look like A&M, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's very different. <laughs> different feel. You can imagine, you know, and of course, that powers at UT Austin uh, uh, had been at Berkeley a while. And so he, he saw that West Coast group as very much the kind of schools he wanted to be associated with. Whereas I didn't do that same way at all. I didn't see those schools at all being compatible with us. I did see the schools in the SEC being compatible with us. And so that was one of the measures we actually looked at very carefully going forward. So this kind of things kicked off, Michael. We really had uh, these conversations going on with the PAC and with, with the uh, uh, with, with, the, with the SEC, and uh, that became publicly known. 
again, leaky ships <laughs> here everywhere. And uh, so in the middle, in the summer of 2010, there was a lot of anxiety out there. I just wanted to ask real quick, with the when you were shown the schedule of the 16 schools, was there any sort of feeling like, for go back to Bill Powers, you know, figuratively patting you on the head and, and you know, belittling you a little bit with his words. Um, it, it gave you this sense, I assume, and I think you may have said it, of like, something else is going on here. There's clearly something happening behind the scenes bigger than just an idea. And then fast forward to Larry telling you, here's the 16 team schedule. We've already thought this all through. This is the way forward. This is the future. Was there like a kind of a weird sense of relief of like, Oh, well, there's the missing piece. Well, I sort of anticipated most of that. I was surprised, I guess, about how much detail that Larry brought Got in. It. I'd known for months, I'd known for six months or more that there was discussions going on between Austin and the big and the uh, Pac-12, Pac-10 office then. So that was something I knew. Now, I didn't know what that conversation was. I didn't know the details of it. But the fact that he brought this much detail with him to show me was a confirmation that there was a long-term discussion going on here. It's not a, a spur of the moment kind of thing. And I believe it was led by two things. I believe it was led by the fact that UT Austin saw their destiny much more in line with that of the West Coast schools than the ones that were in the Big 12, by and large. Uh, I also saw the money. I mean, it's all about the money, ultimately, here. Uh, a 16-team conference that included Texas and California, the two largest states in the country, how many TV boxes are you talking about here? <laughs> so you begin to see the, they saw that this would be the defining power in, in, in college sports to have this 16-team conference here. Given its geographic breadth, the states it included here, uh, the storied schools that were included here, this would be the dominant, the dominant power in college sports going forward. There was no question. That was the vision I think Larry Scott had. He saw the money and the, the clout, the power here. I think Powers saw that, but they were already the richest school in college sports themselves in Austin. That was already true. Uh, and, but they also saw, he saw the compatibility of what he viewed his university to be with those schools on the West Coast in a way I would never see Texas A&M having that same kind of compatibility. I looked you know, a bit north and a bit to the east and saw a lot more friendly faces over there that I would see looking to the West and, and to the Northwest. And so that to me was, and, I, and I ultimately in the book, you'll find reproduced a spreadsheet I ultimately put together. I put together a spreadsheet. I'm an analytical kind of guy. So I, I decided let's, let's just set this down here. So I put down a spreadsheet with basically three scenarios. Uh, the big 12 stays put, stays as it is basically. Uh, we joined the pack. We joined the SEC, and I wrote down every factor I could think of and then indicated in each column under each of those scenarios a plus or a minus. Is this a positive thing or a negative thing for this particular option we might have here? Uh, for example, geography. Uh, in both cases, we'd have a long road to, to, to hoe and a long ways to fly, but even further going northwest, going to Seattle, Washington from College Station, Texas, is even worse than going to South Carolina. Yeah, that's a distance. 
So it's just a long ways up there. And think about the fact you've got two time zone differences, not just one. So by the time you get home again from that game in Seattle, it has really been a long day. <laughs> and so that gives you a sense of that, where those plus and minuses might fall right there. Clearly, with the Big 12 being in one time zone, we had a very high positive for that one. It was a negative for the pack and sort of neutral or between plus and minus for uh, the SEC. Uh, so you begin to see how the thinking went. You know, the money was in there. The reputation was in there. The sort of culture was in there. All those things I wrote down there. That, that spreadsheet is duplicated in my book, and you can see it for yourself and see the kind of criteria that I thought about and shared with the board and others as we talked through all of this. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of things were going on here. But what I want to leave you with is this. But in 2010, once this got out and people heard about it, I was flooded with input from our former students. Uh, this really stirred up the Aggie Nation in a way few things could do. Very much so. And I had my, my, uh, my staff tabulate all this stuff. Uh, we had tens of thousands of emails. We had thousands of phone calls. We had hundreds of letters written to us, okay? And roughly speaking, the idea of us going to the SEC versus going to the PAC or staying in the, in the uh, Big 12 was sort of 50-50. That's what kind of surprised me, that uh, about equal numbers of people who took the trouble to communicate with us were interested in going to the SEC and equal number were e interested in either staying in the Big 12 or going to the PAC. So we were a nation divided, quite frankly. And it wasn't just numbers. I also looked more deeply at who these people were who communicated and realized it was also generational. The current students here were excited about going to the SEC. Okay. The students who were here, Be, Having been one of those current students, I can agree. We were very excited. Our only yes. concern was, so do we still have the Lone Star Showdown or is that not happening? <laughs> Another name could be, could, be, could, be, could be put together. But my, the other thing was that uh, the other group that was quite distinct were the students who graduated or were in school during Jackie Sherrill's era of coaching here. So if you know Jackie Sherrill at all, Coach Sherrill was an exciting coach. Uh, he formed this thing called the 12-man kickoff team, which is still legend. And, and uh, there was a lot of excitement during his time as our coach here. We also got in trouble a bit. That's another story, too. It, my point simply is that those two groups, the, the current students are the ones who are pretty recently graduated, and these from Jackie Sherrill's era were uniform in saying to me, we want to go to the SEC. The older guys and the guys from R.C. Slocum's era were kind of saying to me, well, we'd rather either stay where we are in the Big 12 or move over to uh, the West Coast with the pack. I found that interesting. Uh, but then UT solved our problem. <laughs> uh, in July of 2010, it all came to a head. The, the word had gotten out so broadly that the politicians got involved again, like they did back in the 1990s here. Love that. There was extraordinary concern. I had phone calls from people I won't mention right now, but very senior elected officials in Texas called me uh, and elsewhere uh, and, and really made the case either primarily for the status quo. They, they saw their, their world being more predictable if we just stayed put. 
So I'd say the politicians, by and large, were saying to me and to others who had listened to them, uh, best stay where you are in, in the Big 12. So ultimately, for a variety of reasons, and the book talks about this quite a bit, uh, the board made the decision uh, to not move anywhere. Uh, about the same time UT made the decision, they got the word out before we did. Uh, but the same day and within the same hour almost, both boards uh, in, a, in a closed meeting made the decision not uh, to move. UT to the PAC and us to the SEC uh, or the PAC. Uh, and that sort of closed the chapter on this particular thing. With one thing I'll add, that is this. The moment this was clear to me what the board was going to decide, uh, I went off to the corner and used my cell phone to call Mike Slide. And I said, Mike, here's what just happened. I just got word from Austin. They were going to back away. We just made a decision to back away. I want you to know that for me privately, but also know for me privately that I still think we're best in terms of our affiliation to be in the SEC. And will the doors stay open, even though we're closing it temporarily right now, will your side of the door be unlocked and able to be passed through? He said, by all means, call me anytime. Uh, I ran into him at a bowl game uh, in that bowl season at the end of 2010. And uh, we spoke privately there and uh, reiterated to each other that if I saw the opportunity for things changing enough to let us reconsider this, I wanted to come back to him. He said, you're welcome anytime to call me. I really think A&M belongs in the SEC. Uh, and then we got to 2011. And then something magical happened. Uh, our friends in Austin created and announced the Longhorn Network. <laughs> yep. I remember that being the linchpin to everything. That was the driver behind the successful transition in 2011 of A&M to the SEC. Now, meanwhile, all things happened. Back in 2010, two schools did leave the Big 12. Uh, Nebraska went to the Big 10, and Colorado joined the Pac-10. Uh, ultimately, the Pac added Utah to make up a 12-team conference because it's hard to do odd numbers, and so they did that. Uh, and, of course, the Big Ten's expanded beyond their 11 teams they had then momentarily as well. And that's a whole other story we can talk about. Uh, Missouri had been interesting because the governor of Missouri, a guy named Jay Nixon at the time, who I know pretty well, uh, publicly announced that his school was going to go to the Big Ten. And uh, that never happened. It was never offered to them. <laughs> but he had the idea that <laughs> publicly it might happen, and so he did. And that was sort of embarrassing for Missouri uh, when this all happened, but it did happen too. And that's very documented in all the press of the day. You can find that easily when you go out and look for it. Uh, so here we were in, in, in 2011. I still knew the right place for A&M was to be in the SEC, but I also realized we had to get people together on this. Uh, my board was not uniform about it by, by any means. They were divided on this issue. Uh, but the Longhorn Network catalyzed so much especially when they began announcing about high school football. Right. So for people who don't live in Texas or don't know what the Longhorn Network is, could you give a brief description so that people are tracking with what implications that had for everybody? Even though UT Austin was a member of the Big 12, they have never yielded up their, their TV rights. 
formally, except through the contracts we had signed with Fox. And so what they did is they privately went to ESPN and said, let's cut a deal. Let's form a, a, a network that you operate ESPN, but that only shows UT branded things. And by the way, we want money for that. So they agreed to a 10-year contract, a guarantee of $15 million a year net being given to UT Austin for 10 years in, re in return for ESPN having the rights to, to form this network and show it uh, with their technology, basically. And that, that contract's still in place right now. I think there's been regret on ESPN because they've lost money on this, but that's, that was what they did. UT got that done and they had the, the clout to be able to do it. They had the reputation, the national visibility to be able to pull this off. Nobody else could do that. And again, in most conferences, you couldn't have done it because the conference owned the rights. But in the Big 12, at yep. that point, the schools still retain those rights, except what they specifically yielded up when we did contracts with, in that case, Fox Sports was our, was our, our, our TV uh, partner at that point in time and still is the Big 12. So uh, that was sort of how this all worked out. Uh, but once the LHN was formally announced and known about, it made people very nervous throughout the Big 12. <laughs> it was going to detract, from, obviously, from the Big 12's TV presence quite a bit. And uh, then they announced that they were going to begin showing high school football games in Texas on the LHN. And you can imagine what that might do to recruiting. If I'm a, a young guy playing for Podunk High School in Texas, and all of a sudden I can be on TV <laughs> while I'm doing this, not just the local TV station, yep. I'm on TV big time. Yep. My prospects for getting an offer to a, be a scholarship athlete at a big name school, uh, and maybe being a pro someday are enhanced quite a bit, aren't they? And we saw that as a huge deal. We protested it. The NCAA came in and said, well, you really can't do this yet. We've got to think about this a while. And so it all kind of ground to a halt, but it really got people to thinking. And that was the opportunity to come back again to the board and say, hey, guys, you know what happened here with, with UT and, and ESPN and this network? Uh, we need to get back in the game again. So the board was galvanized then. Uh, to get behind me and let me have their authority to go forward and begin to reopen the conversations with the, uh, the uh, SEC leadership. So we had this closed meeting over in the Regents' quarters uh, at the part of the MS, west end of the MSC, basically, here on Texas A&M's campus. And uh, then the board adjourned to go over to the zone club, the north end of Kyle Field, for their meeting, their open meeting, their public meeting. And uh, I stepped out of what we call a smoking balcony at Kyle Field, not smoking anymore there, but I stepped out there where I was in private and I called Mike Slive. And uh, I got Mike uh, sitting on his porch with a guy named Chuck Gerber and Mike was smoking a cigar and drinking a glass of bourbon. And I said, Mike, uh, can we begin discussing again A&M's membership in the SEC? And he said, Bowen, I've been waiting for your call. <laughs> I've been smoking a cigar well, since waiting for you. <laughs> I welcome that. He was sitting with Chuck Gerber. You wouldn't know who Chuck Gerber is, but Chuck Gerber was the president, or at least, the, I guess, the VP, if you want to call it that, of ESPN that ran college sports for ESPN. He had a lot of cloud and knowledge. Yeah, no kidding. He had retired from ESPN uh, earlier, in about a year earlier, and Mike Slive, knowing what to do, hired this guy as our consultant at the SEC, and he's the guy that architected 
the SAC network, which you know about, and you probably watch quite a bit today, like I did. Which but just real quick, it's, it's it's a very unique thing. It, it shows the personality of both conferences, and even I'm trying not to give subjective comments about um, the sister school here, but uh, it's it's an interesting comparison to see UT go and create their own network to kind of fulfill their own wants and wishes. And then at the same time, you see the SEC going, nah, we're just going to make our own network for everybody. Like if you want SEC stuff, that's what we're going to do. And on top of it, the the exit was $0 out of pocket. You know, if you need to leave, you, you got to leave. That's fine. Um, and it just, the, the comparison is confirming all the details that you're giving me are confirming things that as a student, uh, I was definitely one of the ones thinking, of course we need to go to the SEC. This even from the limited knowledge I know, it makes perfect sense. Um, also my family grew up in Alabama, so we're all for it. Uh, there's only one day out of the year that I don't have a brother. Uh, and it's the day we play Alabama. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, oh, you all, but you will cheer for other teams. If you aren't playing them and say SEC, SEC. Yeah. And it's, it's very familial. It fits with the personality of the South and the, the idea that even Mike's, Mike's salesmanship was to say, you're just like us. It makes sense. Your school's personality and your background, your history, everything fits with what we're doing versus, hey, join the pack 500 whatever and, and but we're going to make you into a new type of school we're going to make you look like these other schools not just bolster what a&m already is and that's very interesting uh, it's to fair to say micah that look at colorado colorado is a different kind of school politically than texas a&m is and they fit nicely in the pack they they were happy to go there they weren't pack wanted them they wanted the pack it was all copacetic and no problem with that uh, but that's CU. That's not Texas A&M. Uh, I think the harder thing would have been not only A&M, but places like Oklahoma State and Oklahoma joining the pack. Uh, yeah, that would have been strange. Sort of in between, but we're different kind of schools than those schools on the West Coast are, basically. And I could just see it being very difficult for us to have the kinds of interchange. If you, any one day, you will find a huge amount of interaction among the SEC schools at every level. The yep. student meets regularly the academic leadership meets regularly so do the various deans the various areas meet a lot it's just a lot going on and the pack and the big tens like that too uh the others aren't as much but we are and and the, and the big 10 is because in the big 10 you've got a certain kind of school every school in the big 10 is a member of the aau except for one nebraska and that's another story i can tell you more about on a, on a private level but but uh, so every school in that conference is AAU. Almost all the schools in the PAC are too. Not all, but, but almost all of them are. Uh, and there are four of us in the uh, in the SEC. Uh, and only and only uh, is that right? A and M, Missouri, Vanderbilt, and Florida. Yes, there are four in the SEC, and there are three in the Big Twelve now. So the Big Twelve has less AAU schools than the SEC does right now, which is interesting. But one thing about Mike Sly. Mike Sly is an extraordinary. Wasn't he's passed away now, but a great friend of mine, extraordinary person. But when he became the commissioner of the SEC, he inherited a conference 
that he had to help manage along with all the chancellors and presidents that had perceptions that were negative. Uh, many people viewed the SEC as a bunch of cheaters. They would do a bunch of things underhandedly to get advantage in recruiting and how they played and things like that. That's what there was. Also, that they were academically inferior to schools of similar structure and size around the country. So Mike Slive set out to change that. Uh, he wanted to have academics championed in the SEC. He wanted to clean it up so that no one could point to any more any other conference could to uh, you know, things happening that broke the rules. Now, rules are broken in every conference. But what you see when you look at the pre-Mike Slive era of the SEC and the post one is a lot fewer rules were broken in the post and in the pre. And, and uh, in terms of the academics, uh, the numbers speak for themselves. And we have more AAU schools now in the SEC than the Big 12. It's still only four, which is less than the Big 10, less than the, uh, the Pac-12, but we have four schools, four really good schools there and others that are really moving in the right direction to be able to be um, ever better academically. So Mike did that with a very deliberate approach. And I appreciated that very much. Uh, just a little side here, my wife and I uh, formed an endowment, 12 Man Foundation uh, last year. Uh, we've endowed something called uh, the Mike Slive Endowment. And it's meant to support our athletic department's academic success stories. So our That's endowment great. is meant to celebrate and support the Department of Athletics at AM in terms of the academic success of our student athletes. And I felt that was such an appropriate way to honor Mike Slive, given what he dedicated his life to, to make that happen. He's long gone, of course, and I miss him all the time. Uh, but that's that. So again, uh, during uh, that time in 2010, we were active discussing things with the SEC. And then in 20, 2011, uh, Mike and I spoke every morning at 7.30 a.m. for months and months. So we really visited every day, maybe just for a few minutes, but just to make sure we knew what was going on in our little world that particular day. And uh, that was a way to keep in touch. So I would I'd call him about 7.30 uh, I would catch him at, at coffee with his cronies and he'd, he'd step aside there and speak to me for a few minutes on the phone about what was going on that day. So again, 2010 wasn't a, a cakewalk. Uh, we, the board was, was supportive of this. Now we began living through the process here. Uh, I formally informed the big 12 leadership that we were exploring uh, the possibility of joining the SEC and I said to them that I understand uh, that I may be excluded now from meetings when you're discussing the future of the Big 12, but I'm still a member of the board. And so I will be part of that leadership team, uh, the Big 12, until such time as we formally leave. But I wanted to put you on notice to do that. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, Missouri, shortly after we began doing it, also approached the SEC about membership and they kept it secret and did not reveal to the Big 12 uh, what they were doing, and the chairman of the Big 12 board was the chancellor of Missouri at the time. So it's interesting how that all played out, too. <laughs> now, I've the whole story about yeah. that. Uh, but again, these are all things happening right now, but we moved this pathway to join uh, the SEC. Mike was very clear that 
He wanted us to apply for membership. He didn't want any kind of hint that they were trying to, you know, pull us into the SEC from their direction. And this is because of a legal term called tortuous interference. Uh, because that we sounds fun. Relationships in the TV contract with the Big 12. Uh, we'd be doing the same thing there. And there is a legal issue with, with you interfering with the contracts others have entered into, basically. And so he wanted to Got avoid it. that. But nonetheless, the, the board of the SEC was meeting one night uh, to formally admit us, accept our application membership here. And one of them, uh, the Georgia president, got a phone call from someone he knew, uh, someone named Judge Ken Starr. Uh, Judge Starr was at that time the president of Baylor University, and he called and threatened a lawsuit against the SEC. No way. And (laughs) I got a call then from Mike and Bernie Matchin. Bernie Matchin was the Florida president who was the chair of the SEC board at the time. They called me and said, we were meeting to do this, and we got this. And one of us, a guy named Adams, got this call from, from, uh, from Ken Starr threatening a lawsuit. And we have to put the brakes on this for the moment. I was unhappy at that moment in time. I can't imagine why. And I have to thank uh, a big individual. Uh, You wouldn't know who Jim Wilson is, but Jim Wilson was a member of the Board of Regents then. Uh, Jim has also been chairman of the board of the 12th Man Foundation. Uh, He was my sanity check throughout this whole process here. A great partner in this and one I have to give great credit to for being uh, really the man who kept me from getting crazy some days about all this back and forth we were doing uh, because of Baylor especially. So uh, that's where we were. Uh, I then uh, unwisely uh, arranged a, a conference call between the commissioner of the Big 12, Dan Beebe, uh, Ken Starr, and myself. And, uh, and I don't usually do this, but I lost my temper during that phone call. and said a few things I regret and I apologize for later, but... Uh, I was very upset that particular time, and I thought this phone call might help, but it didn't, <laughs> and I went away. But nonetheless, uh, we ultimately got the job done. Nonetheless, Baylor finally backed off. And I must say this, Bill Powers, uh, in my presence, in a meeting of the Big 12 board after they were aware of what we were trying to do, uh, said to the board and to me, said, look, we should let a and go. Uh, it's clear they've decided on their destiny being with the SEC, let's don't make it harder than we have to let them go. And I, I appreciate that. I'm not sure what motivated him to say that exactly. I can't speak for him. He's, he's dead now. But he did say that to the board and to me, uh, that we should be allowed to leave. And uh, I appreciated that. Unfortunately, Ken Starr did not share that point of view at the time. No kidding. Well, there we were. We ultimately uh, did get the SEC board to uh, do that. Uh, there was some behind the scenes work I can't talk about in this context about how the SEC felt they could, they could be able to mitigate the legal issues here. They weren't all resolved that time, but they went ahead and voted us in. And we had a great celebration over the zone club. Uh, you weren't there, I don't believe, but we had a great celebration there. Reveille showed up. Part of the Aggie band was there, and we had a great time. Mike flew over with Bernie Matchin, and uh, we had a great discussion and celebration about the formal acceptance of our application to be members of the SEC. 
uh, here on our campus. Uh, that was 2011 again, but fast forward, we didn't have our first game in the SEC until 2012. We officially joined the SEC July 1 of 2012 and played our first game here at Kyle Field against Florida uh, that fall. You know, remember, you were at that game probably. <laughs> I believe I was because uh, I remember I graduated December of 2011 undergrad and then started my prerequisites immediately after that to get into grad school. Uh, so I was definitely there and I am. That was Johnny sure. Manziel's first uh, yep. appearance, by the way. <laughs> yep. Yep. I remember being there. I think I attended every home game because I was, again, I was one of the number one fans of us going to the SEC and excited to rub it in my brother's face that we were going to beat Alabama. So you can imagine when my sister and I are both at the Alabama game that we won, just how ecstatic we were to go and tell our brother about it, who was watching the game from his couch. So I, I definitely was there that year. Well, again, uh, that game was interesting because uh, what I had done, I'd gone to Mike Slot. I said, Mike, uh, we're going to start in the SEC this fall. It's kind of historic with them that they play a conference game uh, as the first game of the season or very early in the season, unlike most schools that play several non-conference games first. And I said, Mike, we need a home game to start our 2012 season against a very important opponent. And he gave us Florida. Now, that was a really good thing for us to do here. We lost that game by a small amount. You may yep. recall that in part of the game that there were some famous moments there when Florida players were rolling on the ground, grabbing their right leg, uh, complaining of a cramp, getting up and limping on the left leg, going off, but we won't get into that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Terrible it was, acting. It was a good thing. And, and by that time, Bernie Matchin was a friend of mine by then. We knew each other pretty well, independently of the SEC. Uh, you wouldn't know this either, but uh, in the AAU meetings, they would seat the presidents and chancellors by last name alphabetically. So Match and M-A, Loft and L-O were usually right together. So I ended up, you see, sitting next to Bernie Matchin for some years uh, as the president of Texas A&M before we actually entered uh, the SEC and had a different reason to, to get together. Uh, so I knew Bernie already. Uh, we had a little friendly conversations, a little quick story about that. Uh, Bernie's wife is a horse person, and my wife is a horse person. So my Very much so. <laughs> first meeting with Bernie Match, and I become president of A&M, uh, and this is June of 2015, 20, 2009, rather, and uh, one a hire we'd already begun here at A&M before I became president was a veterinary dean uh, named Eleanor Green. Eleanor was the chair of a department in the vet school at the University of Florida. And so she, uh, and I had to call her when Dr. Moreno resigned suddenly and I became the president or kind of overnight, uh, I had to call Eleanor and say, please still come, you know, things are changing. The person that hired you isn't here anymore, but, but I am and I want you badly and so on and so on. So she, she of course came. But what I didn't know is that she had a relationship with, with Bernie Matchin's wife. Uh, Eleanor is a horse doc. She's a veterinarian, and horses were her specialty. And she took care of the president of Florida's wife's horse while she was the, at the vet school in Florida. And so Bernie called me the first time I met him and said, how dare you hire away my wife's horse doctor? <laughs> <laughs> What a great that connection. Was, that was our running joke for a while. <laughs> Thief of horse doctors. 
Yeah, it's a small world some days. And, uh, but, you know, it's interesting how I mean, Karen usually went with me to the meetings of the AAU chancellors and presidents. And so she got very friendly with Chris Matchin, Bernie's wife, and they were both horse people. And they both had a great way to talk about that as horse people do. If you know any, any people like that, oh, yeah. you'll find it right away. That's their conversational uh, direction every time they get together. Yep. So again, uh, here we are in 2011. We're in the SEC. Uh, we have a you know a whole season to go through, and I had some pretty bad experiences that season, uh, especially in Lubbock. Uh, we were already known to be leaving. Uh, uh, we were treated pretty badly in Lubbock. Uh, Was that the year that we had um, decorative expression on the buses? Yes, there were some uh, uh, dog things left in one of our buses there. Mm. What bothered me the most, though, was during the game itself, we had to have 30 DPS officers around the fight in Texas Aggie band because of the full water bottles being thrown at them by the fans. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I, I was walking along the sidelines with the president of Texas Tech. Uh, he had been at A&M years earlier in the English department here, had been English department head here at A&M at one point, and he went on to other places, ended up as the president at Texas Tech. He's now the president at Rio Grande Valley uh, UT System School. And uh, so Guy Bailey and I were walking along the, along the sidelines there. We knew each other pretty well talking. And I was getting a lot of cat calls and other words thrown at me from the, from the fans right close to the edge of the, of the stadium seating right there. But I'll never forget walking past the handicap session, sex section of the stadium there. Uh, a section full of people in wheelchairs and things like that. And this, this little old lady who must have been in her 80s uh, struggled to her feet, uh, grabbing her walker to stand up there and shot me the finger. And I thought that had to be <laughs> of what was happening there at, at Texas Tech. And I walked down. To her, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine this. Like, I mean, you have no idea what she's going to say. She's going to all this trouble just to stand up. And then that's what she does. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, I must say, I've been to all the SEC schools for, for football games now. And having been at Missouri as chancellor, I've been both in the East and West divisions. Okay, I've been to both divisions here as well. And Missouri was actually the uh, uh, East division champ two years in a row. It didn't get them <laughs> to beat SEC champions because they had Alabama to deal with. But it was of course. a good thing for their first two years in the SEC to be a division champion. That was something I thought was pretty special. And and Coach Pinkle, the coach there, and I had good conversations about that. Man. Transition a bit to, to Missouri now? Or of course. I mean, you're, you're kind of going – natural story, storyteller, you're kind of going naturally straight to it. Um, I, I know just in hindsight from a student perspective during that time, it was exactly as you said. There, really, the generation that was there or had just recently graduated was all for it. We, we liked the idea of doing doing something new, of seeing the way we saw, um, at least in my circle, uh, the Big 12 was a great sports conference, but the SEC was like the powerhouse. So to be associated with the SEC would mean that we're part of the powerhouse. And of course, there's kind of that younger brother mentality that I naturally have being the third, third kid. But... Um, when you go to enter the SEC and people tell you, oh, well, you're A&M, like now you're going to play the, the big dogs now. And you're like, excuse you? You know, like, 
let's see. Let's see how this pans out. And then right out the gate, we're, we're actually doing pretty, pretty well. Um, I know we've had our ups and downs since then, but it was a very cool moment to be a part of and to say, Hey, I was there when that happened. Um, and to watch that transition, knowing that I'm from Austin and have plenty of friends that are also from Austin and went to UT and they have very strong opinions about it. Uh, pretty akin to Bill Powers, uh, attitude, uh, when he spoke to you privately, but it was a very unique time. Um, as you, you left A&M, um, not in heart, but only in body, uh, you left A&M to go be the chancellor at Mizzou, which I was sad about because I, um, I was there getting my undergrad when you were there. And then I thought I'll be sure to get my master's while he's here too. And then you left right before I finished out with my master's. Uh, and you got there in 2013, but in 2015, you resigned. And uh, as as an Aggie who knew you, it seemed like you were kind of handed a ticking time bomb from the outside looking in. And I know you're going to share kind of what that was like for you or whether that was the case or not. But I know there were changes you were making within the university. And concurrently, there were racial tensions tightening almost to a break point um, with the Ferguson shootings that had just happened about the same time. And President Tim Wolf, from the outside looking in, of course, did not seem to be helping the situation. So I would love to know, you transitioned out of A&M. What was that period like somewhat quickly? And then we can dive into what was that seemingly tumultuous time like for you at Mizzou? Well, my... My plans were when I retired as president uh, here at Texas A&M was to stay. I was a member of the faculty. That's part of what most presidents with academic backgrounds like mine are going to have in place. So I had already begun the process. I picked out my office and, and my, uh, my laboratory over in a brand new engineering building. Uh, so we had bought a house in traditions not far from where I'm sitting in right now. So we had made all these steps forward to, uh, to be here at A&M going forward till I retired and then stay here beyond that. So that was always the plan, basically. Uh, we closed on a house uh, here in Bryan, Texas on October the 1st, 2013. And on October the 3rd of 2013, I got a call from Mizzou. So it gives you a sense of three days later, they called me and, and began to yeah. try to persuade me to become the chancellor. Uh, Mizzou. Now, I, before I go any further, let me make sure you understand that in Missouri, the title chancellor applies to the head of the campus, and the title president applies to the head of the system that that campus is in. That's the opposite of Texas. That That's why I keep getting confused, because I've even referred to you as president of Mizzou to a, a, a couple that we've been doing premarital counseling for who went to Mizzou. And they're like, well, they would, but, not, they would understand what the problem was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you go to California, you'll find both. I mean, the UC system head is a president and the campus heads are chancellors like Missouri. The Cal State system head is a chancellor and the campuses are presidents like it is here in Texas. So it's, it's just one of those things around the country. You'll find both models in some cases in the same state which I find gracious. confusing to people who aren't academics anyway. And that's, that's the problem. So again, I moved to, uh, 
to Missouri for, for one reason, really. The, the University of Missouri uh, had some serious issues. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't, I did not see the racial issues at the time this all was going on as my decision-making was going on, but that came later, but I was looking at their financial issues and some of their academic issues. And they asked me if I would come and, and uh, become the, the chancellor of their flagship campus in Columbia, Missouri. And after some thought, uh, and I thought too, it would be awkward to some extent for me to stay on this campus as the former president, someone at least who people recognize or a while anyway, uh, while other people definitely, were and so it was. There was that, that was there. It wasn't the driver, but it was. Uh, it was one of the things I thought about in, in making this transition. I always saw this as being temporary, uh, and I told. In fact, they asked me in, in my formal meeting with the with the board at Missouri. Uh, I was asked, "Well, how long are you going to stay?" I said, I'll, "I'll give you five years at least. I'll guarantee I'll stay five years." But uh, I'm already, you know, of an age where. I'm thinking about my end game here, and and uh, and uh, that's all I'll, I'll promise to stay. They were they were okay with that. They were okay with that. I was honest with them to say that five years is what I would give them, and I gave them a bit more than that. I got about five years and eight months out of me, <laughs> but but uh, uh, I did make that clear, and I knew it would not be a permanent situation. I was not going to go there and stay forever. I I was going to come back to Texas to Aggieland specifically when I retired and wanted to stop being in this kind of role anymore. Uh, so that was very clear up front, no, no questions about that. And I moved there really thinking that I had a couple of major things to deal with. One was purely academic, uh, trying to make sure, uh, to understand a the AAU is a very interesting club to be in. And Missouri was one of the early members of that club, uh, but the memberships, suitability for membership in the AEU is evaluated every now and then. And I knew having been in the AEU as AM's president, that Missouri was on the bubble to some extent. And when I became the chancellor there, it was imminently clear they were on the bubble. So one of my challenges and the board specifically told me about, told me to do this was to really shore up the membership of uh, Missouri in the AAU. And that, that, I knew, what to, I knew what I had to do to do that, and I knew it would be pretty unpopular, uh, what I had to do. And so that was something that I figured would be unpopular with the university community in many ways. But my coming in as someone who just saw themselves being there for about five years, I said, you know, I can, I can take this, this heat for five years and, and walk away and, and leave, leave the place hopefully better than I can. I found it and move on with my, my life elsewhere. And that was sort of the reason I could, I could deal with it, I thought. Uh, they also financially had some challenges. Uh, Missouri's budget is about a bit over $2 billion a year. And that's because they own their own hospital system and uh, that doubles their budget compared to what it'd be otherwise. So their budget's about half hospital and half everything else. How does that compare to other universities for context? Uh, A&M isn't a two billion right now, in spite of being much larger than Mizzou. Uh, a hospital is a very big revenue generator, also a very big expense generator. And uh, generally speaking, universities with hospitals are going to have a much higher revenue stream than those of the same size population-wise without, without a medical school or without a hospital. We have medical school here, but no hospital. And the hospital is the revenue generator by far. So 
I can say much more about that, but that's probably off, off the beam a bit here. Uh, my point is that I, I was looking at Missouri that fall of 2013, and I kept looking for the chief financial officer, and there wasn't one. And I was just startled by that. I had no idea you could run a $2 billion a year enterprise with no CFO. Uh, but they were. And, and that's why there were financial problems. <laughs> and so, you know, my, my first act really as chancellor there was to create a CFO. <laughs> oh, that, that had not been all this. That, that school was started in 1839. Okay. It's a very old school. Okay. Compared to us here at Texas A&M. But I thought, wow, how could they operate this way? They had a very decentralized financial system and they were in deep doo-doo because of that. And so, uh, what ultimately got me in trouble more than anything else was my desire to reformulate their financial system there and to really instill accountability and not direct central control, but at least uh, the ability to get data analyzed centrally so we could make good decisions about your financial uh, circumstances on the campus. Well, people don't like accountability, so I'm sure that was and real popular. What happened, that, 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 unbeknownst to me in a way, created animosity immediately uh, on behalf of the deans. The deans had great autonomy uh, when I got there. And even though I didn't want to take that away from them in terms of their academic authority, uh, I wanted more accountability on the financial side. And that I didn't know till later got me in, in deep doo-doo with them. And that's only why I, I had to resign. Nothing to do with the racial stuff going on. It was really because of the my sort of accountability campaign I put in place to try to move the school to a better place uh, financially uh, and transparently do so. Uh, so that's really the, the bottom line. And was it, from what I read, it was something like a board or the, the dean's something council, I don't know, um, voted to have you removed and then something about you said you'd be out by January and then they voted again and had you out even sooner or something. Am uh, I remembering that right? It's a little complicated, but what happened is the deans uh, went around the provost, who's their immediate boss basically, and me, uh, and went directly to the system head and to the board itself and uh, demanded my removal as, as chancellor. And that's what really, and I didn't learn about this until it was already a done deal. I didn't even have a clue. Wow. This was happening until it already happened. So that was pretty far into the fall of, uh, of 2015. And uh, the racial stuff was going on then. That sort of exacerbated everything because there was a lot of turmoil and chaos about that. And this was going on on the sidelines here. But ultimately, uh, and you can certainly uh, look for the words of David Steelman, the board chairman at the time, uh, who said very publicly that Lofton's departure had nothing to do with the racial stuff on the campus, but it was all about other things. And what he meant by that was uh, this, this group of deans was really on a war path to get rid of me. And, and I think the board was vulnerable at the time uh, because of the racial unrest there and their sense of powerlessness about that. Uh, Wolf didn't help matters any because he felt that somehow I had abandoned him, uh, which wasn't true, but he perceived that. And uh, we ended up with uh, him resigning and me being asked to resign right after that. Uh, my agreement when I did, I signed a written agreement with them on that day when my resignation as chancellor was announced, that uh, announced I'd be leaving January the 15th of 2016. Um, uh, I guess I can say this here. I, I, I'm guessing this is the case. I can't prove it. 
But on the Monday, well, there was a Monday when this all happened. Okay, this happened on Monday uh, when the board met. Jonathan Butler uh, got the resignation he was waiting for from my boss, the president of the system, and the uh, and everything kind of went. Ah, people, it's over with basically. Uh, you know that sort of happened on one day, a Monday, and later that day, a fax came to my office from Jesse Jackson, uh, indicating he was going to be coming to Mizzou uh, and bringing people with him, and he was going to, to expose the the racism that the campus he thought represented. Uh, now he never came. Uh, I think the the fax was authentic, but. I think it was really, by the time he didn't know what was happening until after the fax was sent, by the time he understood Jonathan's situation, the football team situation, and Wolf's departure, he knew he decided, I don't need to go, basically. But that, that got my board really, really spun up, <laughs> shall we say. And I wasn't in the meeting with them, obviously, but I was getting phone calls from them uh, during this meeting, and it indicated they were just beside themselves. And they asked me, what would it take to have you leave now rather than waiting until January to leave? And so I won't go into details. I got into a, a private conversation a uh, day or two later with the chairman of the board. And we, we crafted a way for me to go ahead and step down right that moment as opposed to later on. So I ended up leaving office on Wednesday of that week. Monday was the day I announced my resignation when Tim did resign. Uh, and Wednesday is when uh, I agreed to some new terms of my of my agreement there I had signed on that Monday about my terms of departure as chancellor. So it was pretty pretty quick. Uh, again, the racial issues. Let me go into that a little bit here. Those really I didn't really understand when I got there uh, what a deep history of racism Mizzou had. Uh, I mean, it shouldn't be, it should be obvious. Mizzou was, Missouri was part of the Confederacy. Uh, it was one of those states that was led into the Union and there was a compromise that allowed that to happen because they were a slave state and they had to let in states, right. slaves at the same time to kind of keep the balance of power uh, in Congress and everything. So I used one, to teach this when I taught eighth grade uh, history. And, and they were surrounded by free states like Kansas and Iowa and so on that, that, uh, that, you know, and border wars were fought overall. It was a, it's a complicated history. I read about it after I got there, not before I got there. And, but I didn't really understand uh, how deeply entrenched these things were until uh, the, until 2014, literally, when this all began, it was 2014. Uh, that's when Ferguson happened. So Ferguson happened in, in 2014. Um, and it wasn't so much the shooting in Ferguson that, it caused, I think, a lot of things to begin to shift. It was the decision of the grand jury not to indict the police officer who did the shooting. Uh, and that happened, that particular announcement was made on the Monday of Thanksgiving week of 2014. And as you know, I'm, I like to connect to students. And so I and very much engaged with them on social media. And I was watching primarily the Twitter feed that night. Uh, and I followed several hundred 
almost a thousand Mizzou students, uh, all types, freshmen to seniors and grad students, black, white, everything you can imagine. I try to have a cross section, try to have a cross section of the student body I can keep up with, basically. And so that's what I was looking at. And I saw the fear and the anguish that those students were expressing when they heard that announcement by the, by the grand jury decision. So that, and that's so why I called immediately. Uh, this is you know, Monday night of Thanksgiving week. Uh, Missouri has a whole week off for Thanksgiving, not just two days. So they were all gone. Uh, but I called Kathy Scroggs, who was my vice chancellor for student affairs at the time, and told her we've got to deal with this as soon as the, as the kids get back uh, on Monday of next week. And so we immediately began planning for a kind of a town hall to be able to bring people together and have them discuss this. Um, so we had put together, it was on Tuesday really the next week. Uh, at the end of the day, we had a, a uh, open meeting. Uh, I was there, Kathy was there. I would say there were about maybe a dozen white people there and about 150 African-Americans in that room, okay? And I had asked Ernest Perry, uh, who was a beloved faculty member in journalism, African-American, to moderate the meeting, thinking we were going to talk about the events in Ferguson and the grand jury results and help people kind of get, work out their anger and concerns and frustrations right. and fears through that conversation. Uh, and so Ernest started off that way, but almost immediately after he opened the meeting up for a general conversation, one student after the other stood up and went to the microphone and gave us their story of their experiences at Mizzou. And it wasn't just one person. There were almost two dozen of them that did that. And Goodness. the stories were clearly not rehearsed. They weren't coordinated in any way. This wasn't a, an effort to create a certain image. It was just people speaking from their heart. And I sat there with my iPad taking notes. I have to this day, the notes I took of that particular meeting on my iPad, all the typos and everything and went in there as I was scurrying a typo. <laughs> I tried to record the things. I, I couldn't believe how what I was hearing here. I, I had been engaging with African-American students on that campus since I got there. Not, you know, there were about, there were about 8% African-American on campus, about double what A&M has in terms of percentages. Uh, and I, I knew quite a few of them. I, Saw them frequently. We had discussions, uh, some private, some semi-private conversations, but I had never picked up on this until that particular moment in time. It was really quite transformative for me to hear those kinds of, of, of personal stories by these students here. And that led to a, a series of these town halls, uh, a series of meetings with student leadership on the campus there to work through all this stuff. And that was all going on during the spring. You know, by, by Thanksgiving, you're pretty much done. So this all kind of resumed back in January of 2015 when kids came back from the, from the holiday break. And we went through the whole spring semester with these conversations going on. Um, that early that fall of 2015, I got a, a letter from this guy named Jonathan Butler, uh, who had formed a group called Concerned Students, a concerned student 1950, uh, about 11 students who uh, were African-American who had gathered with him together to try to force the issue a bit. And what he gave me was a letter with demands. He said, I, we want this, this, and this. 
Uh, and I got that letter from him uh, when I was actually at an away football game and, uh, and began trying to grapple with that. So I met with Jonathan individually several times, met with his group uh, as well. Uh, I made careful notes of those meetings and, and shared them back with the, meet, the students to make sure I was capturing everything. And so we were working through uh, these so-called demands uh, in a systematic way. And uh, my boss was unhappy with kind of the, the turmoil going on campus, the marches, the protests, the, the tent city that had been built and things like that. Uh, I suggested he needed to probably stay out of this and let me deal with it uh, because he really had little experience with this kind of thing, very little experience. With this kind of thing. Uh, well, and not to mention, it wasn't until you were sitting in that initial town hall that even you got yeah. to hear firsthand stories. Exactly, exactly. So unfortunately, uh, Tim did not do well when he met with the student. He met with concerned student 1950 uh, one time. Uh, I told him, I said, Tim, you ought to meet with them, just you. But he brought his entourage with him, and that was a mistake, I think. Uh, his fear was that he, he, by himself, he'd be misunderstood, misquoted. I don't know what, what the issue was. I just said, it's a mark of faith to go in there by yourself be vulnerable, uh, put yourself more on equal footing with them. But he wouldn't do that. Uh, what you should look at sometime if you haven't done so is a YouTube video. He, he was over in Kansas City shortly after that, that, that uh, meeting with, with Jonathan and his colleagues uh, to attend a, a, an event there at one of the, the Kaufman Center, a big place there in Kansas City. And on the way out, students were waiting for him and confronted him, of course, with phones operating. And uh, they asked him to define systemic racism. And he, uh, he didn't get it right. <laughs> and I, that's putting it mildly. And that YouTube was seen by over a million people within a short time after it was taken. Uh, so that YouTube is still out there. You should probably look at it. And, and for yourself, if you want to see this person directly respond or interact with students. Uh, there was a big protest over at his offices. Uh, he summoned me over there uh, to be with him, which I was okay about doing. We walked outside, and he, he spoke to the students for a moment, and he said, let me let Chancellor Lofton talk to you about what he's doing here to try to deal with your, your questions and concerns. And they said, we're here to talk to you, not to him. And Yikes. I, you know, what do I do? I, I, I tried to disengage slightly because I thought it would be inappropriate for me to really not honor their wishes here. He took that as my trying to blame him or cast some kind of negative uh, impression on him, which was not my intent at all. I was just trying to honor the students who were there uh, in their own words to speak with him, not with me. And he, that's when I think he really began to become very upset with me. Uh, and tried to, you know, again, begin this process. He already had, by that time, uh, the deans talking to him about me for other reasons. Uh, and uh, that's what kind of led, I think, to the ultimate confrontations we had uh, that really led to my ultimate resignation, which did follow his by a short time, but were pretty contemporaneous. Which is so, it's so unfortunate because it, he could have viewed that, um, I say could have in a, I don't know, some sort of idealism way, idealistic way, but he could have viewed that in a different way as like, you told him, first of all, hey, I, I'm trying to handle this. 
Uh, I'm taking care of it. Um, and then second, you even tried to give him a leg up by saying, you should go in there by yourself. Show a little bit of vulnerability and it will actually ease tensions. They're not going to just attack you. If it feels like you're being attacked, you individually probably aren't a whole lot. It's just let them tell you what's going on in their world and then you can respond to it. But I feel like what could have been seen is when they said, no, we don't want to talk to Dr. Lofton. We don't want to talk to you. It was kind of like, we've already talked to Dr. Lofton. He He's talking to us. He's listening to us. We're here to talk to you. We want to know what you're going to do about it now. That's just, it's so unfortunate. I Too many people have, if I can be so frank, egos that uh, overshadow much of their decision-making. So, Well, let me just finish up a few things here. Uh, I had worked through with Jonathan and his group, uh, his list. And, you know, you have to understand that a student, and you can appreciate me, you're, you're still pretty young. A student wants to see things they care about happen sooner rather than later. You know, they have four years, whatever, plus or minus on school, on school property, and that's it. And uh, so they naturally have an urgency about these things being done. I went through that list and there were two things on there that just I could not do or I could not do quickly. Uh, one was they demanded that 10% of the faculty of the school be African-American. And I said, I had no problem with that, but I said in some departments, it's much higher than already, but overall the school is not, it's about 4% for the whole school. And, and uh, but you have to ask the question, how many PhDs that are black are going to be graduated each year in fields like physics and chemistry and mathematics. Uh, there aren't many. And those that are, are highly sought after. So it will take us a long time. We can put money behind this, we can work hard at this, and we can try to go our own to some extent, but it will take a decade or more to begin to get to the level you want us to be at. It can't be done in one year or even two or three years that you're gonna be here. Number two, they wanted to have a curriculum on campus that would help students grapple with their own histories and their own sense of who they were and who others were and be able to try to tackle some of the racism they thought was in, on the campus there through that mechanism of education. And I said, I'm happy with that. And we already have courses like that, but to scale it up and to add new courses in, I can't do. I mean, the curriculum belongs to the faculty. And so I went to the faculty senate there, and they had a committee chaired by one of my colleagues in physics, actually, uh, Angela, Angela uh, and I, uh, you know, talked about this, and she, you know, said, yes, this is our responsibility, but it won't happen quickly. The senate had already gone through this conversation before without successfully coming to a conclusion. It was going to be a long haul. And that was the other thing I couldn't do. Other things they wanted, we could probably do and did do pretty quickly. That was two we just couldn't do or I couldn't do anyway. And uh, I think Jonathan got that. But he also realized that money was a key factor here. And he knew that the president of the system controlled the purse strings uh, for new money anyway that I didn't have. Uh, so to get new money to the campus would require the president's engagement, not just mine. And that's why he finally, he finally figured out two things. He figured out that Tim Wolf had control of some of the money uh, that he thought needed to come to us to meet his needs. And he thought also that 
that Tim was more was was more vulnerable, perhaps in some ways, than I was because I was trying to be reasonable. I was trying to be uh, attentive and trying to work through these things in a very systematic way. And I think he had a different opinion about about Mr. Wolf, and that showed up very clearly at the at the famous uh, homecoming parade event that happened, uh, where Wolf. I mean, I'd heard that there was going to be a stoppage of the parade. And my concern was basically the fact I was riding in a wagon pulled by the two Missouri mules that the campus used. And I asked the people handling, I said, what happens if a person with a bullhorn uh, jumps in one of these two 2,000 pound animals uh, and begins making a lot of noise? Will they behave or not? <laughs> and uh, the, the veterinarian who was in charge of them told me, well, uh, they're pretty gentle, but those are conditions they might respond inappropriately to. And I don't want to make it hurt. So I said, if that happens, I will get down immediately from the wagon there and go to the students and try to join with them and walk them down the street and diffuse the whole thing here. Well, they never came to me at all. They went, Wolf was behind me, about 12 cars behind me, and they went after him. And I didn't know it till the parade was over. I didn't even know this happened until the parade was done, that they had stopped the parade for 30 minutes by stopping his car from moving ahead. Uh, they had a bullhorn until they were actually, you know, pushed aside by police that, that converged on the scene ultimately and, and got the parade back underway. But I had no idea it was even happening until after the fact. So it gives you a sense of how things were. They had figured out they wanted to go after Wolf, not me. Uh, we continued conversing with them in, in my office, and I did it personally for quite a while after that. But they then realized that their better option was probably to go after him. And that's when the demands for his resignation uh, began to be publicized and what led to the football team being persuaded to go on strike or threaten strike if they didn't get Wolf out. Uh, you notice I wasn't mentioned by the football team at all. It was just nope. being mentioned. And that's indicative of the strategy that Jonathan had gone after at that particular point. So it is what it is. Uh, I, you know, it, was, it was not a pleasant circumstance, but I told people, uh, they said, this is the worst thing you went through. I said, no, by no means. Uh, in my last episode with you, I talked about Hurricane Ike, and I talked about yep. uh, the death of Roger Stone. Those were much more difficult, personally, yeah. for me to get through than this event in Missouri was. Uh, it was unpleasant, but it is what it is. It's part of the job, basically, and you do the best you can. And unfortunately, there were just uh, uh, too many factors stacked against this thing happening in a way that was going to allow me to, to continue my role there and to be able to, uh, uh, to get things resolved in a better way. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, because of the board, I think had a lot of respect for me. Uh, I was well taken care of. Uh, I, I remained there. Uh, I stayed my five years, a little plus five years, as I promised to begin with. I uh, spent some time doing administrative work to try to continue some of my work on the academic side in terms of research productivity on the campus. And then I uh, moved back to the faculty fully and began teaching again. Uh, or a couple of years before I left. It, it's crazy to me. Um, and this is not intended to go off on like a more social political tangent. Um, I've got three episodes in which I talked to some guys from my church about uh, the, the racial tensions happening in America. Uh, I go to a very multicultural church. And so I've got friends that are different they look different than me and literally from uzbekistan to people straight from africa um to people that are black even um i I think i mentioned him last time brad smith who was a mizzou quarterback good friend of mine i was in a discipleship group with them and so i've 
I've heard those firsthand stories like you heard and was just baffled. Like that was your experience going to like a Macy's or something. Are you serious? Um, there with your three kids and that's what happened. And so to me, it's remarkable how much people just want to be heard. And it plays out even in the story that you shared where the reaction to you was very different than the reaction to Tim Wolf. And that was because of the posture, which I don't know the full details of what Tim Wolf did or didn't do. This isn't an interview with him. Um, but to hear the the steps that you took just from a sense of compassion, even talking about wanting to have a good cross-section of the student body on Twitter, it just it's what we need more of right now is people listening and just being willing to work together and show some compassion. And um, it just reaffirms how much I, I appreciate you as a human being and as a friend uh, getting to hear this, this side of the story. Well, it is what it is. And I'm sure others who are part of this, if I have a slightly different take on it, I've tried to be honest about what I said here. Uh, there's a lot more I could say, but you know, time is what it is. We can't manufacture yeah. time here for this, this episode. And you probably want to close this off anyway and go to your next episode beyond me. <laughs> my, my point simply is that there's a lot to this that, that uh, I've told many people about. Uh, my biggest concern is that I think those people who live in Columbia, uh, this was a local story until the football team. And then when that happened, uh, the media descended on the city in a huge way. And they were gone as soon as it ended. <laughs> of course. Well, the window that the national media put under this is about, about two days long. <laughs> and yet this whole thing stretched out. As I said, it really began for me uh, at the time the, the Ferguson grand jury produced their results back in November of 2014 through the next year. So for a full year, I lived this almost every single day. I spent countless hours dealing with this issue as best I could. And my team was very much involved with me in that particular process. But uh, the national media spent two days there. And so much of the story outside of Columbia is only known to the eyes of those media and the, and the very simple short slice of, of time that they spent there. Uh, and that's what really is hard about this is that people have built perceptions about what happened there and about me personally without a lot of context to it. And uh, I understand that. I, I have no bitterness about that at all. It is what it is, the way things are in this day and time. Yep. And uh, this story is one that I think will never be properly told. Uh, a few people have tried to put together pieces of it, but without much success. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we have gotten disconnected for a second. Yes. The audio is still working. I can still hear you. There you go. Okay. Back on right now. All right. We're back on now. Yeah. There was, I, I thought that my uh, power went off for a second because the AC I, I stopped too. I audio, but I, you, you froze for a few seconds. There. Okay. Probably did too. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that whole story. Um, and even what you said about the, the media gets that tiny little sliver and then they're, they're gone. And that's the only perception you get that. And that applies to so many people. And it's even, Sometimes if, if something is not clearly a joke in a post on social media, um, people can definitely, even if it is a joke, they can take that the wrong way. And, and then all of a sudden their entire perception of you is, is very different. Um, I've posted things that were 
to me, very clear satire. And then I get private messages. How dare you? And I'm like, take, take a load off. Let's be a little bit lighter about this. This is clearly a Photoshopped photo. People have, people react so quickly now. Oh, for sure. Anything they encounter and things like Twitter and Instagram uh, and TikTok are so compressed in time. There's so little you can say. I mean, Twitter has, of course, expanded its number of characters you can you can put out there somewhat, but still pretty short. And uh, yeah. some the stories aren't that simple, and you can't tell the whole story uh, in that number of characters that Twitter allows you to use. And when you break it up into several, guess what? People's attention span and train of thought can't can't follow that. So I just I, I don't I don't say a lot on social media. I'm there a lot, and I, I do say some things there, but mine are fairly limited to things I think are reasonably uh, unlikely to cause a lot of flashback. Not that I can't take flashback. I take a lot of my time, but why create it unnecessarily? So I don't, I stay away from a lot of things that I could talk to uh, just, just because I think that uh, you need to give it more time. I appreciate podcasts like yours that are long enough uh, to be able to let things happen in a more natural way as far as communication is concerned and people can get yeah. more the story. The question then is, will your, will your listeners listen long enough to be able to get all that? Yeah. And, and I, I will say it's good to know your thought process behind posting on social media. So when I see comments about my dancing skills that you knew that <laughs> merited the amount of time it took. I would want to do that for people I know and respect like you. Uh, I'm so glad that's what respect looks like. <laughs> my tune was in my cheek very firmly when I, when I wrote that. But I couldn't help myself that particular moment in time. I mean, your wife is so much more skilled than you are. <laughs> very, very much. She, she did a hair flip and then just walked away when I read her your comment. I was like, you're not going to defend me? So, thanks so much. <laughs> she goes, I mean, I've been a dancer since I was a little girl, since Charlotte's age. I think I've got a few years on you. Anyway. The, uh, the local Ann Club is doing a, a thing tomorrow near a, near a house here. And I'm going to be on a Zoom call at 2.30 tomorrow to uh, talk about things again. I'll probably, my first 30 minutes is probably be SEC again. I'll probably repeat some of the things I told you today on this yeah. podcast, but, but uh, they are trying to bring people together as virtually tomorrow and also in person too, for that matter. And they want me to be on Zoom for 2.30 tomorrow for about an hour and 15 minutes to both say a few things about uh, uh, topics of interest to me. Probably the SEC will be the choice there. And then they answer some, some questions from those on the Zoom call. And then I'll be earlier that day in person over at uh, the Fellow uh, Hotel nearby here to, to uh, talk to people face-to-face. I'm in a booth over there, I'm told. Probably a dunking booth. But the story. <laughs> How fitting. Yeah. Is it uh, the George, by chance? Uh, no, it's a Stella Hotel. That's uh, okay. pretty new. I'm not sure it was here when you were here. It's in, it's in Traditions. It's uh, okay. just a little bit to the west of the uh, campus. Uh, you know where the Parsons Mounted Calvary is? And that's yes. Where we, uh, it's on F&B. Uh, takes you across 2018 over to the Stella, which is a pretty new hotel that's part of the traditions, you know, development, basically. Got uh, it. Lake there called Lake Atlas. And uh, they have a thing called Lake Walk, which is a pavilion and a pathway along the lake there. And so the uh, club is having a event over there tomorrow with food and music. Dallas ship, you know, Dallas at all? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you want to pick up on? Dallas is a very neat Aggie who's very talented. He's a marketing guy. 
uh, worked at Outfitter, Outfitters when I was here as president and uh, was very good at marketing my book, for example. Uh, but Dallas is now a marketing consultant and uh, has a lovely family. But he also sings, uh, mostly country and western. So he'll be performing tomorrow from 1230 to 130. I'll be That's great. For that day. We, we, my wife and I love to hear him sing and everything. He has a lot of George Strait and those kinds of, of songs that, that we like a lot. Uh, but he's somebody you ought to meet one of these days. He has a great Facebook okay. page, and he occasionally uh, puts Facebook Live up and actually plays and sings on Facebook. You probably would enjoy that kind of music at all. But yeah. you're too young, maybe. <laughs> no, I, I would love to connect with them. Um, as you know, I'm I'm definitely a connector. I like to meet people and put people together and say, "Hey, you well, should." Dallas is a very interesting guy. You would enjoy talking. He's an interesting fellow, and and uh, again, an Aggie who I've known for many years. Uh, very much involved here in, in College Station and Bryan, uh, was the marketing director for Eggman Outfitters, a story you probably remember when you were here on, on campus anyway, uh, has a uh, uh, fairly young daughter and a brand new son just born the other day, uh, a little bit younger than your kids are, but you'd appreciate awesome. them. Yeah. It's, it's really something else again. She loves to, to dance when her dad's singing. I just find it incredible. Oh, that's great. Yeah, my daughter wants to dance with me, but it ends up being just in circles. Um, so that's a whole different thing. And then the other one. If you get on Dallas's page, it's Dallas Ship, S-H-I-P-P. I get on his Facebook page and you can see some videos of his daughter. And it's, it's kind of cute stuff. I really enjoy it a lot. As I enjoy pictures of your <laughs> and videos of your daughter too. Uh, <laughs> I definitely really appreciate that. I mean, taking, taking charge. <laughs> yes, definitely taking charge. Well, as we near the end of the year and I, we're we've now come through an election by the time this releases. Um, I just want to know what encouragement do you have, not only for the greater populace of people listening to this, but also Aggies that are currently in school looking towards their futures. You, you tend to be a very motivational guy. And so I want to hear what encouragement you would have for us. Well, there's a lot of anxiety and frustration and anger right now out there. As you know, and I know, well, it, it's, it's easily discerned. And social media makes that fairly easy to transmit, unfortunately, but that's just part of the nature of the beast. Uh, I would say this, if you really look at history, uh, you'll find out this country has gone through many times when it was highly divided and tempers were high and things really didn't go well. Uh, and somehow we've gotten through all that. So I have great faith in the resiliency of our nation. Uh, I have a great faith in the, uh, in the human nature of our people as a nation and certainly as, as Aggies uh, in the Aggie nation. Uh, that things seem really dark right now to some people. Uh, and I, I understand that. I can appreciate why they seem so dark to you. But I would encourage you, if you have the time, to look at a little history. Uh, we've had elections before that were highly, highly charged moments. Uh, the one with Winthrop B. Hayes, for example, comes to mind when uh, the election wasn't decided until January of the next year. So that gives you a sense of what's happened before. Uh, and uh, somehow we have healed and gone on as a nation and prospered. And we've gone through it again and again. <laughs> the problem is it happens usually only once in a generation. So by the time you've, you, you, you're born and you live a while, you haven't seen this. Now you're seeing it. And you think this is unique. This is the first time this has ever happened. Not true. Uh, we've been through at least as much uh, pain and agony in the past as we're going through right now, but it doesn't happen every day. 
every year. It happens maybe every generation or two. And that's what I think is required here is a perspective that we've been around for over 200 years as a nation. We've gone through some pretty rough times. I think of the Civil War, especially uh, when we were very divided as a nation and lots of people died. Uh, This is nothing compared to that. And uh, we have to understand that we'll get through this and we will heal and we'll go on. The main thing I ask of people is just to be a little tolerant of each other and uh, to go on. Uh, I, I don't think we need to make it worse and we can make it easy better by just loving each other and expressing that love and recognizing we're all different. Uh, we're all unique in our own ways. We have our own opinions, which I think can change over time. Uh, mine certainly have over my lifetime and yours will too, Micah. And that's okay. That's what it should be. Yeah, they have, they have already. Um, I getting to meet some incredible people, even at A&M who, um, you know, with me trying to open my mind a little bit to understand their perspective, whether or not I agree with whatever, you know, the topic may be or whatever. I just want to understand how people think. I want to understand where they're coming from and what makes them who they are. So my opinion has changed uh, about many things over the years. And then even being a parent, you know, that, that definitely changes your perspective on many things. That does have an effect, sir. Yeah. A few effects. (laughs) When you're a grandparent, I've got seven grandchildren. When you're a grandparent, you'll have even another change then too. Man, if there's a change, anything like my mom, it's uh, spoil them rotten and have as much fun as possible and enjoy and every away. second. Yeah. And then bye. <laughs> see you later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Dr. Lofton, I appreciate your time so much. Uh, again, this is the second time we've gotten to do this. Uh, I hope that it's also not the last. I'm not sure exactly what we'll talk about next time, but I'm sure you have more than enough stories to share with us. Um, I would love to know how can people get in touch with you? You've mentioned Twitter, you mentioned social media. If they're trying to um, just maybe check in and see what you're going about and doing. That's probably a good way to do it, Micah. Uh, Initially, I mean, uh, if people really want to reach me, we can figure out other ways to more, you know, perhaps more straightforward. But I would say uh, my main, I have three Twitter accounts. My main Twitter account is at Aggie Prez, uh, P-R-E-Z. Uh, that's one, um, Arbo and Lofton on Facebook. You can certainly get to the page. It's not head- hidden, but I'm always at 5,000 friends, so don't expect me to friend you because I really can't. Uh, I have a, I have a uh, fan page, but two of them, in fact, but I don't really use them much. They're just, just not very uh, easily used for communication purposes. So I'd say uh, that Facebook is, pro- is, is okay to observe me a bit, um, but Twitter is probably more interactive to get to me that way. And uh, I can certainly arrange for DMing if you want to DM me some, sometimes. Uh, and the other thing is probably uh, Instagram, which I find a more difficult medium for communicating anything which is complex. It's built around images, of course, not, not words as much. Uh, so I prefer Twitter as a place to reach me. I check my Twitter feed pretty often. And if you uh, want to get to me, you can always find me there. I'm happy to Nick with you in a more formal way there. And if it gets down to it, I can share my, my cell phone and my emails with you as well. Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll save that for people if they reach out and say that they specifically would love to. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be exclusive. I'm just saying, no, I understand. Just avoid, you know, some chatter here. I'd rather <laughs> know you want to, if you're serious about reaching me, we can make it happen. That's oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and one way to reach me that anybody can use it's only Twitter. Uh, and so Aggie, at Aggie, is probably the best one to use. It's the, it's the one which I probably look at the most. And again, if you just want to see what's going on in my life, 
Uh, Facebook is a place I'm at quite a bit, or LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn quite a bit as well. Those are both venues that you can get to me at. And mm-hmm. you know, your generation, who you are. I mean, when I first got involved with media, it was Facebook only. Uh, then yep. Twitter became the, the medium, then Instagram. Uh, I haven't done much TikTok yet. I've got a TikTok account, but I don't do much there. It's a little hard for me to dance for 15, <laughs> so I don't do much of that. Uh, but I do have, have, have that out there as well. And you, you should do a TikTok tomorrow when, when he's singing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. My, my, uh, my physical infirmities make that a little challenging, sir. <laughs> no, you can, you can maybe, if his daughter's there, you can film him and, uh, and his daughter possibly. Uh, I'm just giving you ideas. Give I could ideas. do that. That's an idea. I'll think about that. Then. I was thinking even, uh, Karen's video of the feral hogs while on the horseback, that could have yeah. turned into a good TikTok. <laughs> put some music to that. We have know. our feral hog problems here at Brian Cause. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I appreciate your time so much. I'm going to let you go. And um, okay. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. Have a great day tomorrow. My best to Elizabeth. Hope to see you guys. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. And that closes out our second interview with Dr. Lofton. Uh, as you can tell, he is a fantastic storyteller. One of the first things I picked up on um, when I first got to meet him and spend some time with him. But it's been a great conversation, getting to hear the story, the behind the scenes, if you will, of how Texas A&M moved to the SEC and all the drama that ensued, especially for living in Texas. It was a really big deal. Um, of being an Austin native, it... Uh, it, it kind of hit different for me, but would love for you guys to connect to Dr. Lofton. He is very uh, conversational. He, he doesn't shy away from his fan base, if you will. So by all means, hit him up on Twitter at Aggie Prez. That's A-G-G-I-E-P-R-E-Z on Twitter. And you can search him on Facebook. Like he said, he's got fan pages. Uh, he's also got his personal page. He's capped at 5,000 uh, followers, so he, he can't can't add anymore unless he kicks somebody else off the list uh but it's worth a shot maybe send him a friend request see what happens but otherwise you can just follow him on his fan pages uh through facebook he's also on instagram he didn't mention what the the tag is but i'm sure it's easily found and last but not least the book that he mentioned is called the 100 year decision texas a&m and the sec That book is for sale on Amazon. You can purchase that and find out the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would tell you. I feel like if Paul Harvey was alive today, he would have a podcast. Uh, Micro has a podcast kind of like that. Anyway, that's all I've got for you. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to follow, to like on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're on every platform, especially the platform you're listening to right now. This is the most authentic conversation you've ever heard on a podcast. I'm Micah Brown, your host for the Micah Brown Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Y'all take care.